Well, good morning again. Uh, let me uh, begin this morning by asking you, encouraging you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're back in the book of Acts again this week. Chapter 11, verses 19 to 30 uh, is what we're going to look at this morning. And it's not an overly long text, but the significance of what is happening in our passage this morning really cannot be understated. Because uh, there's some passages in the Bible where afterwards, things are never quite the same again. I mean, things like Noah's flood, big change, call of Abraham, children of Israel, you know, walking out of slavery in Egypt, uh, even things like Jesus' birth or the day of Pentecost. Those are, you know, the ones we might think of off the top of our heads. Those are the big moments in the Bible. But today's passage also really marks a huge change that is about or is taking place in the church. Because if you remember from our previous study of the book of Acts, the Gentiles have just been, they preached the gospel and they've been welcomed into the church. And from here on out, the book of Acts is really, it begins a shift. There, there's a movement here uh, where from this point on, from the book of Acts, it, it's, it moves from sort of the Jewish church towards the Gentiles. It moves more from Peter's ministry towards that of Paul's. It moves from Jerusalem as sort of the home city of Christianity, to places like Antioch. Big things are happening here. Because these new Gentiles are, are starting to discover for themselves what it means to be a part of Christ's church. And I think one of the big questions that people had here is, well, what, what's going to happen to this church? What, what is the church going to look like now? And to see those answers... Uh, that's what our passage is about. You can follow along with me as we look at our passage, Acts 11, and as we see the, the beginnings of a church worth imitating. Beginning of, in verse 19, it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, whom on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood, and, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father God, um, we've already been blessed this morning, but Lord, we continue to ask that you would continue to bless us. Lord, through your word, 
Uh, Lord, may our hearts be ready and prepared this morning to hear from you. Uh, may there be a humbleness to them. May there be a hunger uh, in our hearts just to hear from you. Lord, as this, this word is preached, I pray that it would not just transform us, but Lord, it would draw us closer to Jesus Christ, that we would know him more, know him better, and know what it means to live for him more and more in all that we do. Lord, we welcome you here among us. Uh, Lord, you are our Lord, we are your people, and Lord, we just want to submit everything we are to you in these moments together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have for you this morning what I hope is exciting news, because uh, I'm pleased to inform you that I am going to take you all on a trip, another trip. Yeah, all exclusive, all expense paid, absolutely free, 100% imaginary uh, trip <laughs> to Antioch, the city of Antioch. There's no need to pack. We're going to leave right away. But let me tell you a little about what you've won. Because um, today, Antioch, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Uh, it's a little more than a patch of scrubby ground. The wandering rivers have covered it over. It's mostly buried. It's by a little small city in Turkey, but it's not much to see. But 2,000 years ago, Antioch really was something to see, something to behold. I have it on a map there uh, if you want to kind of know the location. And this is actually important because at the time that this letter was being written, there were 15 other cities in the region also called Antioch. Uh, some, it's, the, the story is hilarious. Some general uh, built a bunch of cities and he named them all after his dad. Uh, which is a beautiful thought, but I would think it would make things very confusing if you told someone you're going to Antioch. But um, the Antioch that we are talking about, which is on your map there, um, this was the Antioch, this was the big one. Uh, it was known as Antioch the Great, or the Queen of the East, or even Antioch the Beautiful. It was located, uh, that would be 300 miles uh, north of Jerusalem, and it was 15 miles in from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it had actually been the capital of the Seleucid Empire. Uh, but even now, during the, well, during the time of the Romans, it was still the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Estimates have it at a population of about half a million people, which is huge. So it was a center for, you know, commerce and trade. It was a political center. It was known for music and literature it was very multicultural. There was Greeks and Romans and even Arabian and Persian culture was mixing there. And it even had a sizable population of Jews. And it had great sporting events. Uh, if you know the story from the book Ben-Hur, the big chariot race uh, with Charlton Heston, because that's the only guy we remember, it took place in Antioch. So in terms of importance, Antioch would be on the level of any sort of world city. It would be a New York or a London or Paris, uh, by today's standards. But in terms of reputation, well, there Antioch sort of left a few things to be desired. Uh, one scholar put it like this. He said, one might say that Jerusalem was all about religion. Rome was all about power. Alexandria was all about intellect. Athens was about philosophy. But one might say that Antioch was all about immorality. Antioch was known for gambling and prostitution and blood sports and pagan worship. It was not a good place 
uh, morally speaking. Some historians have even suggested that, you know, the corruption, the moral decline uh, of Rome in its later years began because of the influence of Antioch. So why would we want to go visit here? Well, it's because it was in Antioch that something rather significant, something actually rather amazing happens. Because it's in this corrupt and wicked city that a small and faithful church was born. And what's more, this small church, it grew to the point where the city of Antioch actually became one of the main centers for Christianity in the ancient world. Some have actually called it the cradle of Gentile Christianity. And our passage today actually gives us a, very, a glimpse into the very sort of early stages of this church because we see many things that it takes to establish a church like this. Because when you ask yourself, what, what makes a good church? You know, what are some of the important ingredients in, in having a healthy church? Well, you need to know, you know, what are some of the essentials to seeing a church grow and thrive and make an impact on the world? You'll find the answers right here on the page in front of you. And if you're wondering what those things are, I'm glad because that's exactly what we're looking at this morning as we see what makes this church in Antioch really a church that is worth imitating. And the very first point is that it begins with people who have missional hearts. Uh, reading in Acts 11, beginning of verse 19, it says, Now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, just for a bit of context here, uh, it's all the way back in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen uh, was martyred for proclaiming Christ in Jerusalem. And that led to sort of widespread persecution in the church, for the church, in the area around Jerusalem. So many of the believers who were in Jerusalem, they fled. But as they fled, they took the gospel with them. And they told others along the way that they met about Jesus. And so even when they found themselves residents of Antioch, you know, one of the most sinful cities in the world, they didn't give up, they didn't throw a pity party, they just kept sharing the gospel. And you know, in verse 19, when it says they were speaking the word, uh, that doesn't mean they were preaching on street corners. It doesn't mean they were knocking on, you know, door to door. It simply means that they just kept bringing Jesus up with other people in conversation as they talked. Jack Arnold writes, the word speaking in that passage, it represents a simple, common, natural speech such as, such as is used in everyday conversation. They just talked to everybody about Jesus. And we're, we hear that at first they just do that in their Jewish circles. But then once it became clear that, you know, God was in the business of saving everybody, even the Gentiles, or as our passage put it, the Hellenists, that's those who were Greek and spoke Greek and lived a Greek lifestyle, we're told that this church deliberately and intentionally began speaking Christ to them as well. And one of the keys to this church's growth, this church's influence, was it had people who were willing to do that. It was just, it was a church that was willing to tell other people about Jesus. So even though, you know, 
Those pe- the people in that church, they may have worked as a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, you know, even though they were carpenters or traders or innkeepers. No matter what the people in this church did for a living, the people of this church knew that their real call, their real work here on earth was to share the good news. It was to tell other people about Jesus, to, to tell people that he was alive. He rose again. Tell them that he was the son of God. Tell them about, you know, the forgiveness of the cross and the hope for the future and the life eternal that can be found in Jesus alone. That was their passion. And it was their passion, even though many of them, as it said, even though they fled from persecution because of their faith, even though these people had, you know, lost their homes or their families or their lands or left everything else behind, they were still excited to tell people that Jesus Christ was the best thing that ever happened to their lives. Despite anything that they may have lost, to have Christ was still gain. And they were excited to share that with people. And you know, it's often pointed out, we never learn the names of the people who shared. Uh, These people in Antioch, they literally started a work that would change the world and change the church as we know it. And they're completely anonymous. And that's a beautiful thing. William Barclay comments on this, says, it's always been one of the tragedies of the church that men have wished to be noticed and named when they did something worthwhile. What the church has always needed, he says, perhaps more than anything else, is people who never care who gains the credit for it is so long as the work is done. These men may not have their names written in the history books of men, but they have them written forever in God's book of life. So in this church, sharing their faith was not something they did only when they got credit for it. It was not a job they left just to the professionals. It's not something they expected the apostles to do for them. The power of this church came from the fact that every person saw themselves as a person who was on a mission to tell other people about Jesus. And look at the result, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Many people believed. A great number were told. In fact, so many people believed that it came to the point where this growing church, well, it needed a little extra help. Which brings us to the next factor in a church worth imitating, and that's great leadership. Uh, actually, I'm going to take that a step farther, and, um, because even better than great leadership is godly leadership. Uh, look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And actually, we've met Barnabas already in the book of Acts. Uh, And I guess what's interesting to me is that if you were on a search committee, you know, looking at resumes to select a pastor for your church, there's a good chance that Barnabas' name would not be high on the list. From all we know about Barnabas, we don't know if he was highly educated. Uh, We never hear if he was a powerful preacher or any kind of shrewd administrator. Um, And yet that's okay, because when it comes to serving God in leadership, what the Bible tells us over and over again is what counts the most is character. It's not that abilities or talents or training are unimportant things in ministry, but the church should never put those things above a leader's integrity. And I've seen churches make this mistake. I've seen churches call a pastor or a leader who they think is talented or dynamic or entertaining, thinking that all of that talent can overcome some minor lapse in moral character in their life. It never works. Character comes first. And look at Barnabas' resume in this area. Verse 24 says, 
For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And that's the kind of man you want at the helm of your church. Someone honest, someone with integrity, someone willing to be accountable, someone who works hard and who loves the Lord and someone whose life is reflected you know, by the qualities found in Galatians 5, 23, who says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And even more importantly, someone full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was, was a man like that. He was a man who knew how to wait on God to find the strength uh, for his ministry and his power. Those are the things that a church should be looking for in a leader's life before anything else because godly leaders are a vital part of every church worth imitating. And so is a spirit of grace. Look at verse 23. Because it says, when he came, that's Barnabas, and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And I'll be honest, I don't know if this is the most important verse in this passage, but it's certainly my favorite. Because it reflects, I think, the wisdom in the church of Jerusalem to send Barnabas as the guy. Because you know what? No one in Jerusalem or anywhere, really, no one knew what a Gentile expression of the church was going to look like. And it would have been easy for the church in Jerusalem to say something like, okay, guys, we have got to get this under control. We've got to set up some restrictions for these Gentiles before things get out of hand. You know, who knows what might happen? We need to make sure that they are going to do church the right way, the Jewish way, the way that we've been doing it all of these years. Otherwise, you know, Jews and Gentile might start living together, eating together, total chaos. And you know, if the, if the, if the apostles had sent one of those legalistic you know, members of the circumcision party that were in Jerusalem who gave Peter such a hard time just a few verses earlier, that guy probably would have seen something very different when he looked at this church. Instead of seeing the grace of God, he probably said, there's a lot of things we need to fix. That's not Barnabas. We're told Barnabas, he saw only the grace of God on display in this church. Even though things in this church would have been likely very different from what he was used to. You know, even though this church was probably breaking all kinds of unwritten rules that his Jewish church back in Jerusalem, they kept those rules. Barnabas saw that God was still at work doing amazing things in the lives of the people of this church, even though it was different from what he was used to. And grace like that is a mark of a great church. That there's just, there's, there's a kindness that exists in a church like that, a gentleness among people there for each other. That there's, a, there's an ability in a church to just accept a person where they're at instead of where we expect they should be. It's ability to lay aside our own agenda and our own expectations and our own prejudice aside, just allow God to work in new ways. And it's the ability to see believers who are different than us and still welcome them as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's the ability to see people making mistakes or struggling with sin, and instead of rebuking them harshly, encouraging them to get back up and try again and help them remain faithful to the Lord. A church worth imitating extends grace, even to outsiders, even to people who are different. And I truly believe 
that grace is the best environment for people to grow in Christ and to learn to walk in faith. Which leads us to the next factor of a church that's worth imitating. And that is it has a passion for teaching people about Jesus and how to walk in faith. As we see in verse 24 continues. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great number of people. These verses tell us that the one thing that Barnabas really set his heart to do in this church was to equip people to live for Jesus. So he patiently and persistently begins teaching this church about Christ. And that's important because, you know, we are to, as a church, we are to make disciples, not just believers. Jesus' own words in the Great Commission says, go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And that's why Barnabas goes and, and finds uh, Saul, Paul, because he needed someone who had that teacher's heart and that teacher's passion. Because church is more than just showing up and, and enjoying fellowship together and singing some wonderful music to inspire you. Church is also about learning more and more about Jesus so that we can be equipped to live our lives for him. And that should be a focus of every church. And in every part of the church, whether it's from the pulpit or from the youth group or the small groups or the children's classes, our job is to get people into the word of God to learn more about Jesus. And notice here too, it, this, was not, this was something that took time. We're told for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. This was not just a one-off meeting. This was not like a weekend retreat they put together to teach some people some stuff. It wasn't even a quarterly course that was offered. I would even say, this was more than just a weekly sermon. I get the sense this was sort of time spent daily in the word of God for an entire year. And that matters. Because growth takes time. You know, there's an old story about James Garfield who one day was the president of the U.S. But uh, at that time he was running a college in Ohio. And one day a father of one of the students at that college asked him, is there some sort of shortcut my son could take that he could get through college uh, in less than four years so he can start earning money? And Garfield replied, well, of course there's a way. Of course there's a shortcut. But then he said, when God wants to make an oak tree, it takes about 100 years. When he wants to take, make a squash, it takes him two weeks. It all depends what you want your son to be. And the lesson there is that change takes time. It, it, it takes commitment. It takes being in it for the long haul. In fact, one of my favorite descriptions of the Christian life is that it's a long obedience in the same direction. There's no shortcuts to growth. And that's why this church was, was persistent and patient in teaching people about Jesus. Which leads us to the next characteristic in this church that's worth imitating. And that's that every person in this church put their faith into practice through both generous service and giving to others. Look at verse 27. We're told in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
Now, it's a bit of a sidetrack here. When Luke is writing the book of Acts, I think he has an agenda when he's writing this part of the passage. Because things are changing. You know, what begins with this radical idea in Acts chapter 10 that, that Gentiles can actually be saved becomes this understanding that Gentiles can actually become part of the church. That's the first part of Acts 11. And then it moves at the beginning of our passage to this reality that, well, Gentiles are now actually one of the fastest growing parts of the church. And then in these verses at the end of chapter 11, we see the realization that the Gentile church is actually becoming a blessing to the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. Because I'm sure before the Gentiles were saved, I'm sure they would have asked the question, what good could ever come by reaching out to those people? What could that group ever offer us that would make a difference? This is the answer. It's this idea that those people you often overlook or dismiss as unimportant can become a true blessing in your life if you're willing to surrender them to the Lord. It's a beautiful thought. But the lesson for us as a church is that in these verses, we also see this church active and living out their faith. And I say that knowing there's a real danger in many churches because we can become isolated and and insulated from the world around us to the point where sometimes the needs and the suffering and the tragedies of the world outside of the church just don't register with us. But when this church in Antioch, when they heard about a need, even a need that was outside their own church, even a need that was 300 miles away, what we see happening is this church mobilizing to help meet this need. And notice here in this verse, this is important, every person did their part. It doesn't say that it was some of the people or a couple of the people or even a majority of the people. It says everyone according to his ability. And some of those people could do more and some of those people could do less. But every one of them did something. Because this was not a church that stood around and said, well, we'll let the pastor do it or the denomination can deal with that. This is the church that says we're going to take action. We're going to mobilize. Even if the pastor's late, he can catch up when he gets here. These people, all the people were mobilized and active and involved. It's really, it's a picture of the body of Christ at work. A congregation built on teamwork. It was a congregation that put their faith in action. It was a congregation that served when they saw a need. A congregation characterized by generosity where everybody was doing their part to the best of their ability everyone giving what they could and serving however they could. And that's the picture we get of this church in Antioch. They had a congregation with hearts ready to share the gospel with others. They sought out godly leadership. They nurtured a spirit of grace. They pursued spiritual maturity in the word of God. And they had generous hearts with each person giving and serving according to their ability. And while we don't know much else about this church, we don't know if they were a wealthy church or a highly educated church, we don't know if they had a great building or a talented worship team, what we do know is that even in this place of Antioch that was so hostile to the good news, they thrived and they grew and they had an impact because they were committed. 
to one another, to living for Christ, to doing church God's way. And that actually leads us to our final lesson we learn from this church that makes us a church worth imitating. And that is we see in their lives a total commitment to Jesus. And I actually skipped over this verse before, but look back at the end of verse 26. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And as you hear that verse, I don't want you to miss the significance of what is being said here. Because, you know, prior to this, the followers of Christ have been called many things. They were called disciples. They were called believers. They were called followers of the way. But it's here in Antioch that for the first time, the followers of Jesus are called Christians. And it's important to note here that that's not what they called themselves. That's what the people of that city called them. And let me tell you, when they called them that, when they first used that word, it was not meant as a compliment. That's the kind of name you call somebody if you're looking for a fight. It was a term of reproach in their minds, a term of scorn, as in they're one of those Christians. Today you might say, well, there goes one of those Jesus weirdos. Yet as much as it was used as an insult, I think that church probably saw it as the highest compliment. You know, I read a great story this week about a famous concert pianist who was giving an interview. And he said this, he said, it is not from choice that my life is music and nothing more. When a whole lifetime is too short to attain the heights he wants to reach, how then can he devote any of the little time he has to things outside of his art. Then he said this, if I am to call myself a true musician, how can music not be my life? The same is true for us as Christians. If we are to call ourselves Christians, how can Christ not be our life? And the people from this church in Antioch you know, they were so committed to Jesus and they were so different from the world around them that the people of that town really needed a new name to describe them. They'd never seen anything like that before. And even if it was meant as an insult, the people considered it a privilege to bear the name of Christ. And sadly, nowadays we have a lot of people calling themselves Christians, but their lives look no different from the lives of the people around them every day. But, you know, you're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you try to live a good life. You're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. You are a Christian because you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, and he has become your everything. Thank you. These people in Antioch, they were changed by Christ. Their lives were transformed. They had been made new and they really were Jesus weirdos and Jesus people because Jesus was their Lord and Savior and they lived their lives for him in everything they did. And that's the thought I want to end on this morning. You know, as we reflect on our church and our place within it, we ask the question, are we giving our all to Christ every day? Are we telling people the good news about Jesus? Are we people of the word? Are we living transformed lives? Are we giving generously and serving faithfully? 
are we just making excuses? Are we just sort of getting by? Are we kind of half-hearted, part-time followers of Jesus who, who spend most of our time on spiritual autopilot? And I know those are big questions, but when it really comes down to it, there's no more important questions we need to answer. And it's my desire as a pastor that we would get to know and serve and live for Jesus the way that this church in Antioch did. Just reminding ourselves, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And it always has been and always will be. He is the center. He is our focus. He is our master and savior and Lord. He's our foundation both for our lives and our church. So let nothing stop you from knowing Christ Jesus more and more in your life and living for him. And may nothing stop us from being the kind of church that Christ has called us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our church. And Lord, we thank you for this community that we find our church in. And I think, Lord, in so many ways, I think we feel like the Christians in Antioch. This is a tough place to be a Christian. You know, there's, there's lots of people of other faiths here. There's a lot of hard-heartedness. There's a lot of obstacles to reaching out around us. But Lord, that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means we need to trust more and more in you and, and be dedicated to you. And Lord, as a church, I pray we, pray we would be imitating this church in Antioch, that, Lord, we would be people sharing our faith. And that's not standing up on a soapbox and preaching, but, Lord, it's just bringing Jesus up in conversation with the people we meet every day. That, Lord, we would be looking to put godly leaders in place, that we would be teaching people the word of God and equipping them to live lives fully for you. That, Lord, we would be a place of grace that accepts people who are different, who accepts the outsider, who looks at those people who are different and said they can still be a blessing, even though their lives are different from what we understand. And that, Lord, we would be serving generously and giving generously in all that we do. And that, Lord, that we would be called Christians because we have such a commitment to you that there's no other word that can truly describe us. That we are living our lives completely sold out to you in all that we do. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, as we live like that, as we become a church like that, our church would have an impact on this community and the lives of all the people who are here. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.